Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Book of Hebrews, chapter 9. hard to believe we are already in chapter 9 of the 13 chapters of this epistle. Some of you might be praising the Lord. We're moving into chapter 9 this morning uh, because of the theological density of the material we've studied so far. It's been heavy lifting. The book of Hebrews is not an easy book uh, to really grasp. And uh, it has indeed been challenging on many fronts and somewhat repetitious, but that has been by design. Uh, with the hope that as we rehearse these cardinal truths of this epistle, we may retain those truths in a way that strengthens us in our walk. So we have been intentional about repeating those key themes again and again and again so that you can retain, in the hopes that you will retain, um, the, the key truths of this book, which are so rich theologically, so rich. As always, we endeavor to rehearse these complicated truths, not so we can be puffed up, not so we can astound our friends with our depth of knowledge in the book of Hebrews, but rather so that God is glorified. That's why we do such a deep study, so that we may apply that also in our lives in a way that brings glory to God, not to us. Our passage this morning is part of a larger message, really one key thought between verses 1 and 14. Now, you all know we're not going to cover all those verses this morning. We're going to just try to get through verses 1 through 5. That's our focus this morning. And we're going to be looking at the Old Testament regulations for worship, the regulations or the rules, if you will, the rules for worship in the Old Testament. And the way that the author is going to describe these regulations for you is through the architecture or the design of the tabernacle, And the furnishings, he wants to show you that those are significant, that they weren't just placed in there in happenstance, that each one is pointing towards something. There's not a lot of comment in verses 1 through 5 regarding the significance of either of those two things in the first five verses. But as we we move through it, we'll try to fill in some of what we know from other biblical passages, hopefully being true to the text. We don't want to add more than what's in there. There's not a lot in there, but we do know from other places in Scripture uh, where we can make some correlation. That's what we're going to attempt to do. Then in verses 6 6 through 10, which by the grace of the Lord, hopefully we'll do next week, the author is going to explain the meaning behind the rituals that were observed in the worship service in the Old Testament in the tabernacle, as well as some of the limitations. Because remember, he is he has started off by telling you that there's a new covenant, right? So he's still on this theme that there's a new covenant now with some changes. And then finally, in uh, verses 11 through 14, the author is going to take those truths that we learned about the Old Testament worship in the earthly sanctuary, and then he's going to show us how those correspond to Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary. That's what he's wanting to do. But let's fill in some background briefly so we have the correct context for our verses, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. All through the first eight chapters, we have seen that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's the whole theme of the book of, of Hebrews. That's, that's the entire theme. In chapter 7 and 8 specifically, we've seen that not only is Jesus better, but then he started narrowing his focus to the priesthood of Jesus. 
And then in chapter 8, he drills it down even further by demonstrating that Jesus is not just a better high priest, he's also the mediator of a better covenant. Every covenant that God has made with man had a mediator of some sort. Someone who would stand between God and man as a representative. Everyone. Jesus is better than every one of them. He's better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron, better than the entire Levitical priesthood. He's better than every one of those previous mediators. But now, beginning in chapter 9, the author wants to demonstrate exactly how Christ is a better mediator of a better covenant. And you may recall, turn, if you will, to chapter 8, verse 6, or just look over there, if you will. And we are reminded that the author tells us, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant with what? That has been enacted on better promises. We have a better covenant enacted on better promises. And then we saw, in, uh, quoted Jeremiah 31, 31 through verse 34, where Jeremiah, back in the Old Testament, was talking about this new covenant that would be coming that would be enacted, that would be different than the Old Covenant. And then we saw here in verse 13 that the Old Covenant had become not had become obsolete, not because it wasn't perfect, for it accomplished exactly what the Lord knew it would. It became obsolete because the people could not keep it perfectly. And it needed, it could never accomplish the perfection the Lord required for us to have unhindered access to him. And so a new covenant would come someday that would not be written on stone tablets, but on their hearts. And the covenant would bring true knowledge of God for all of his children instead of just a select few. And this covenant would bring a true and genuine relationship with God as they would truly know him. And finally, the new covenant would bring complete forgiveness, something the old covenant could never do. Now the author wants us to focus in on the differences between the worship of God under the Old Covenant and the worship of God under the New Covenant. And specifically because Jesus is a better high priest who mediates a better covenant in a heavenly sanctuary. So let's start unpacking that beginning in verse 1. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless our time in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again, for the immense privilege I have to Open up your wonderful truth. Thank you, Lord, for all who are here today. Thank you, Lord, for their conscious decision to come and to worship you. It's not by happenstance, not by accident. But, Lord, you are sovereignly in control. And I pray, Lord, that today these words of your truth, Lord, would penetrate our hearts. That we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. That we would... Hear what you're saying, then apply them to our life in a way that would bring you honor and glory. That's our heart's desire, Lord, every time we gather together. So open up our hearts, Lord. Open up our minds. Illuminate our eyes to your wonderful truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're following along in your notes, within your bulletin, let's get to our first point, which we find in verse 1. The first covenant had regulations for divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. This first covenant had regulations for divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. Let's read that verse together. 
Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. So you could translate this verse like this. In order to keep the first covenant, people had to worship God according to the rules. In order to keep the covenant, people had to worship God according to the rules. Now, notice those words at the end of verse 1, as they're very important to the entirety of this section, and they are earthly sanctuary. Earthly sanctuary. What follows after in verses 2 through 5 in this chapter are the regulations for worship in the earthly sanctuary. Now, we've already discussed that word sanctuary when we saw it in chapter 8. Matter of fact, let's look at chapter 8, verse 2, is where we see our word for the see our word again here, which is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And then we see it again in verse 5, where it says, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Back in chapter 8, verses 2 and 5, it was talking about a heavenly sanctuary, but it was linked with another word called tabernacle. That word tabernacle is the epicenter of the Old Testament worship in the Old Covenant. Everything that had to do with worship happened in the tabernacle. It was the very epicenter of what it meant to worship God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. Matter of fact, John MacArthur writes this. He points out that in the Bible, the Bible only votes two chapters to the story of creation, but 50 chapters to the tabernacle. Any of you who've read through those chapters in Genesis know exactly what I'm talking about. They're very, very detailed. Why the tabernacle? Why not the temple? The author focuses on the tabernacle rather than the temple because the tabernacle was introduced when? immediately after the Old Covenant was established. Remember, he gives them the law, he sets up the Old Covenant, and then the very next thing he tells them to do is how to build the tabernacle, how they would worship him. Secondly, the tabernacle was obviously more temporary than the temple, which fits what the author's point is. Now, we saw in chapter 8, verse 5, that the design of the tabernacle and its worship were revealed to Moses by God in great detail on the mountain. Great detail. The author leaves out any references to the courtyard. That's not the focus of what he wants to point to. And remember, the courtyard contained the bronze altar for sacrifices and the bronze laver or basin for, for ceremonial cleansing. What's which seems strange when you consider all the things he mentions in verses 2 through 5. But his purpose centers on the tabernacle itself because he wants to compare and contrast the earthly tabernacle with the heavenly tabernacle, where Jesus entered into the very presence of God. So his first question he answers for us is, how is it that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant? He's going to point you to these Old Testament furnishings for worship and for the very architecture of the temple. He's going to say all of those things are significant. And he wants you to think about the theological significance of that tabernacle. He wants you to remember that God gave very detailed designs to Moses and said, don't you vary one iota from what I tell you to do. 
This is how I want the drapes made. Here's who's going to make them. Here's what I want on them. Here's how many ringlets they should have. Here's how many amulets they should have. Here's the design. Here's the wood you're going to use. Here's how long it's going to be. Here's how tall it's going to be. Here's what constructed first. Here's who's going to do it. There's nothing left to chance. Here's the incense you will burn. Here's the recipe for that. Don't burn anything else other than that. Here's the only people who can do it. Make sure they're dressed like this. Make sure they're ceremonially cleansed before they do it. Make sure only those from this tribe are the ones who serve me. There's no chance that you could worship God in any other way. In fact, if you attempted to worship God in any other way, the penalty was death. Very, very detailed. The tabernacle and the architecture and the furnishings on one hand pointed to the presence and provision of God among his people. The very fact that the tabernacle was placed right in the middle of his people as they traveled demonstrated to them that God was with them, that God would provide for them, that God would fight their battles, and that he and he alone was who they should worship. But as he lists these regulations for worship, which in these verses are the furnishings in the outer and inner tabernacle, he's hinting that even the furnishings themselves are revealing the limitations that were in the Old Covenant. He's just kind of hinting to him. He's going to explain it coming up in the next few verses. From the design itself to every furnishing in there was pointing toward the need for something better, something more perfect, something more complete that mirrored the heavenly sanctuary. The entire tabernacle, from its specific design to its placement to every instrument in there, is a picture of Christ and his mediatorial role. And he would encompass as our great high priest, not in the earthly sanctuary, but in the heavenly sanctuary. Let's go to point number two. We see that in verses two through three. Let's read those together. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Point number two, the tabernacle consisted of two sections called the holy place and the holy of holies. The tabernacle, again, consisted of these two sections, an outer section and an inner section. And these two sections were separated by a thick veil. The outer section was called the holy place. It was 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. Exactly. The inner section, the holy of holies, was a 10-foot cube. There was a lot of daily activity in the outer sanctuary as the priest would come in twice a day, morning and evening. And the priest entered into the holy place, and on his left was a solid gold lampstand with seven branches filled with pure olive oil. And since there were no windows, this provided the only source of light in there. When we think of the lampstand, we normally think in terms of the menorah, which is the Hebrew word for lampstand. There's actually a picture of a lampstand in the arch, the Ark of Triumph in Rome, that shows pictures of Jewish, Jewish captives being forced to carry the golden lampstand as part of the Roman spoils of war. 
We have a description of this lampstand in Exodus. Let's turn there, shall we? Keep your thumb in Hebrews, and let's go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 35. Genesis, Exodus. Genesis, chapter 35, beginning in verse 17, we get a description of this lampstand. I'm sorry, Exodus 35. Did I just say Genesis? Sorry, Exodus 35, verse 17. The hanging of its courts and pillars and sockets and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the woven garments for ministering the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron and the priests. We can see everyone whose heart stirred in him, everyone whose spirit moved in him. I think I got the wrong section here, don't I? Yeah, I'm looking for uh, the description of the tabernacle. Where did I? Where did I? Where did I miss it here, folks? I got the wrong, the wrong translation or the wrong verse here. I'm so sorry. Notice, if you will, when you find it instead of me, the bulbs and flowers. And the almond blossoms are described. And the lampstand represented a living thing. Thank you. Is it Exodus 37? Uh, Just short, huh? Okay, thank you so much. Praise God. All right, Exodus 37, beginning in verse 17. Let's look at that together. Then he made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base and its shaft, its cups, its bulbs, its flowers were of one piece with it. There were six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand from the one side of it, three branches of the lampstand from the other side of it, three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower in one branch, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms, a bulb and a flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and in the lampstand there were four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. Verse 21. And a bulb was under the first pair of branches coming out of it. And the bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it. And a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it. For the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single hammered work of pure gold. He made its seven lamps with its snuffers and its trays of pure gold. And he made it and all the utensils from a talent of pure gold. Notice the references to the bulbs and the flowers and the almond blossoms. The lampstand represented a living thing. What did the lampstand represent? One thought from other scripture we can find in the Gospel of John chapter 8. Let's look at that. Verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, What? I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. One thought from other scriptures that the lampstand pointed to the one who would be the light of the world. Under the old covenant, the lampstand provided the light in the Holy of Holies. In the new covenant, Jesus is the light. Jesus' references to himself as the light of the world are steeped in Old Testament illusions. Turn to Exodus again, 
chapter 13. Verse 21, Exodus 13, verse 21. The Lord was going before them, what? In a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them, what? Light, that they may travel by day and night. Look at Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 19. The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. The waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and the pharaohs, horses, the chariots, and their horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. So we see in Exodus chapter 13 and in Exodus 14 as it represented those who follow the light of God's pillar of fire. And there are many more. Uh, Head to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60 as we're working our way back. Isaiah chapter, Isaiah 60 beginning in verse 19. Isaiah prophesies this. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. And the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, the least one a mighty nation, and I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Isaiah 60, verse 19 and 22. Let's not forget also the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Let's turn there. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, the very last book of the Bible, beginning in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw what? Seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. This is where John, in a vision, he hears a voice at the beginning of a vision, and he turns, and he sees a lampstand. And notice that in John's vision, there's not a single lampstand with seven branches, but seven separate lampstands. That symbolism is explained to us in verse 20. 
where it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are what? The seven churches. They represent the churches of God. One more, Revelation 21. You're already in the book of Revelation. And look, beginning in verse 23. And here we see, we'll pick it up in verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb of God. The Apostle John describes the source of that light in New Jerusalem is none other than Christ himself. So we can see from other scripture that Christ is the light of the world. On the right, as we walked in, as we go back into our text in Hebrews, and we see the next thing in there, we saw this table of showbread. And on that table of showbread, it was a wooden table, and it was overlaid with gold. And onto this table, the priest would lay out 12 loaves of bread. Why? Twelve. The twelve loaves represented the twelve tribes of Israel. But I believe that the bread also represented the one that is the bread of life. And we see that again in John chapter 6, verse 41. We find this another Jesus I am statement, I am the bread of life. It is Jesus under the new covenant that provides us with the spiritual nourishment for our very souls. In a little bit, we're going to be celebrating communion together. And we're going to note that his body, which was given for us, is represented by the bread. Now look at verse 3 in Hebrews chapter 9. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which called the Holy of Holies. So once we go past the lampstand and once we see the showbread, the table of showbread, now we're coming up to the second veil. The, the reason it's called the second veil is because there was a first veil. The first veil, I know you're astounded by my logic here, my keen sense of awareness. Anyway, the first veil was located at the door of the tabernacle. And then beyond this veil was, past the golden lampstand, the table showbread, was the second veil. The second veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Its dimensions were in the form of a perfect cube, 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. And embroidered on the veil were the images of cherubim. And they served as guardians of the veil, if you will, a reminder, keeping even the priest from entering in, except for one time a year. Only one priest could go in there one time a year into the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And so we see these cherubim stationed just like they were at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And they're stationed with the flaming sword in order to keep out all who might enter. Do you remember what happened to that veil when Jesus died? was torn from top to bottom. Scripture doesn't say who did the tearing, but the fact that it was from top to bottom tells us that no human hand did this. It was the hand of God who is letting us know by this outward sign that the way into the presence of God had opened. And it had opened through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That second veil represents the body of Christ. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 as we get to our third point. 
Let's read it. We'll pick it up in uh, Hebrews 9, verse 4. Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Point number three, every piece of furniture was designed to point Jesus and his ministry or to Jesus and his ministry in the new covenant. Every single piece of furniture was designed to point to Jesus and his ministry in the new covenant. So as you're heading in a little further into the holy place and to the center, just outside the veil that divided the holy place from the holy of holies, was this thing called the altar of incense. And the altar of incense was a cubit wide. A cubit is about 18 inches. A cubit wide and a cubit long and two cubits in height. And it was made of acacia wood that was then overlaid in gold. Now, what does the incense represent in the Old Testament? Well, we know from the book of Revelation that it emphasizes the prayers of the people of God going uh, going up to God. And so the incense in the Old Testament worship symbolized what? That God hears his people's prayers, and especially the prayers of the priest on behalf of his people. Incense was offered on this altar every morning and every evening. Matter of fact, if you've been joining us on Wednesday nights, this is where Zechariah was, was tending to the altar of incense. That's what he was doing when the angel Gabriel appeared to him, announcing that God had heard his prayers and his wife would have a son, and she should call him John, who would be known as John the Baptist. And the Lord required that that special incense be burned constantly on the altar of incense. So there was always this thick cloud that was coming in. Just The altar of incense was located just outside the second veil. And this thick cloud was always coming in, and it had this sweet aroma that filled the entire tabernacle. And this dark cloud, which represented the prayers of God's people and the prayers of his priest on behalf of his people, always coming into the Holy of Holies. The Lord required, again, that special incense be burned constantly. And it was a special incense, a mixture of spices to be used only in the tabernacle. God specifically required the recipe. No other recipe could be used. And this incense created a sweet-smelling aroma. And the smoke of the incense represented the sweet prayers of God's people ascending to heaven. Now, scholars debate why the author of Hebrews seems to place the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies rather than outside the holy place. Now, we don't have enough time for me to explain to you all seven different variations of why we think that is. Not that you want to listen to me ramble on about all of that. Let me just give you the short version. Some say that he was mistaken, that he uh, didn't know where it was. That is a little hard to believe, given the author's, the author's detailed description of anything even remotely connected to Judaism. So that one's a little harder to believe. Some say the reference is not to the altar itself, but to the censers that the priest used to carry in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. They would take coals from the altar of incense and carry them in. Uh, so it could be that the author has that in mind. The Greek word used in that sense in the Septuagint is the word censer. 
But if that's true, then the author would have omitted mentioning the altar of incense, which seems, again, hard to believe. I believe that the best solution is that the author is really connecting the altar of incense with its function in the worship, not necessarily its placement. I think he's really saying that the altar of incense, even though it was placed just outside the veil, for worship purposes was really used for what was going on inside the Holy of Holies, and that's what he's talking about. And we see the same thing in Revelation 8, verse 3, where the golden altar of incense representing the prayers of the saints is list, is before the throne. So we get this idea that even though it wasn't physically placed there, its purpose is connected there. Stepping into the Holy Holies would bring you to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was the holiest part of the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high, and it contained in its earliest times a golden jar of manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and sten, sten, ten stone ta- I'm sorry, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Boy, I'm having trouble today. It's a good thing I don't speak for a living. What did the manna symbolize? The manna symbolized God's provision for his people, which remember we've already talked about again with Christ and the bread. Aaron's rod in the Old Covenant Blossom showed that what? That God had provided a line of priests specifically to serve his people. And then the the tablets of the Ten Commandments, they were inside of the ark as a reminder of God's righteous rule, the covenant that God had made with his people. The covering of the ark was called the mercy seat, or in Greek it's called the place of propitiation. Propitiation means turning away God's wrath. It's the place where God's wrath is turned away. We'll hear more about that as we progress in chapter 9. God did not look at the broken law. He saw the blood. Remember, the high priest would go in, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat so that when God, when the high priest came in to make atonement for God's people, he saw the blood of the sacrifice of the lamb and not the broken law that was represented in those stone tablets inside the Ark of the Covenant. Christ is our mercy seat. Christ is our mercy seat. But his blood doesn't just cover sin, it takes it away. All of these symbols and signs of God's power and his nearness and his provision and his, and his appointed priest and his glory all pointed to the one who would fulfill all of that to perfection. All of it. Notice also the mercy seat was overshadowed by two cherubim of glory, so-called because it was there that the glory of God's presence would be. But guess what? If you and I had lived in those days, we never would have been able to see that. Did you know that? We would just have to have the explanation from the high priest or from the priest of what was going on. We never would have been able to see into the Holy of Holies, not live about it, not live afterwards. The only people who saw those things were priests, and then some of those things only the high priest saw once a year in the Holy of Holies. The author of Hebrews says, Do you understand what that means? In the way that the tabernacle was divided between an outer court, and a holy place, 
and a holy of holies where God's presence was, where the seat of propitiation was, where the blood was sprinkled. So I could see the sacrifice of the blood of the lamb instead of all of the broken rules of the Ten Commandments, all of my laws. He says, all of those Old Testament regulations, although they pointed to Christ, did not actually provide a way into the presence of God, did they? They were just pointing towards a day when that would actually happen. The curtain was still there, separating God and his people, separating God from, his, from their worship of him. But when Jesus dies, what happens to that curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the outer temple? Once again, it's torn from the top to the bottom. So the author of Hebrews points to that architecture and that furniture and says what? He says, that very architecture and furnishing of the Old Testament worship demonstrate that there was another way needed. There had to be another way to provide what God wanted. What did God want? God wants complete forgiveness of sins. Remember the new covenant. God wants you to know him, to have a genuine relationship with him. He can't do that if sin is the barrier that stops us from that. God wants you to have true knowledge of him. Not just a priest, not just a scribe, not just one of the Pharisees, but you. And God wants to write his heart or his law on your hearts and your minds, not just on stone tablets. All of that, all of that, beloved, is accomplished through Christ. Every bit of it. It never could have happened under the old covenant. That's what he wants you to see. If that was going to happen, God calls that perfection. Remember when we talked about that in chapter 7 and 8? Perfection. What is perfection to God? Unhindered access to him continually and complete forgiveness of sins. That could never happen in the old covenant. God knew way back then when Jeremiah prophesied, even before then, of course, Even when Jeremiah prophesied about it, in Jeremiah 31, there would come a day when a new covenant would come in. That's in the midst of the old covenant still going on. He knew. It would require a better high priest who would mediate a better covenant with better promises. And that better high priest who mediated a better covenant, a new covenant with better promises, is the one we worship and serve our great high priest, Jesus Christ. One of the superiorities of the new covenant is that in the new covenant, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, God God has drawn extraordinarily near to his people so that all of his people experience on a daily basis his presence. Isn't that amazing? You never could have done that. How wonderful it is to be born in this time, on this side of the cross, to be able to experience what those saints in the Old Testament could only dream of. Finally, the author says he could not at this time of the writing of this passage speak in greater detail. Not that he doesn't want to, but it's not his main point. He didn't feel he could speak of in greater detail, but rest assured, we'll hear a lot more about the mercy seat and propitiation and sacrifice in the coming weeks. Beloved, in short gathered in this space within the tabernacle were the deepest and most symbolic symbols that could be found from within the entire Old Testament period. These were no ordinary things. 
These were specifically designed by God and they had a very specific purpose and they pointed to a very specific person. If I were to make a, an analogy, perhaps not a very good one, it would be like gathering all the symbols of American history into one room. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Liberty Bell, the flag, hand sewn by Betsy Ross, and so on. Gather all of them up, put them in one place. That's what you have going on here in the tabernacle. It's like everything that involves the worship of God is all in this place. Everything in there has significance. Everything in there points beyond itself to something greater. Everything in there points to the power and the majesty and the holiness and mercy of a God who is awesome to behold. It was a holy place, a sacred place. And all of it, every minute detail was pointing to Christ, our great high priest and the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant with better promises. We'll hear about that and how that affects our worship next week. But for now, remember the truths of the new covenant as we prepare our hearts and minds for communion. I'm going to ask the men to come forward.